Heavenly Father, we call upon you with all our hearts. We ask that you would answer us, O Lord, by sending your spirit amongst us this morning to help us to obey your decrees. O Lord, we pray that we would have a delight in looking at your word together because your spirit works in us and gives us a joy as we come with brothers and sisters in Christ to hear our Heavenly Father speak. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as I said, uh, we're resuming our series in the book of 1 Samuel this morning. And 1 Samuel, if you're not aware, uh, comes at that time when Israel is transitioning in the, term, in the way that they have leaders over them as a nation. So, of course, the Israelites, if you go back to the book of Exodus, they're the ones who come... Uh, the, the Israelites come out of Exodus uh, from Egypt. They come out under the leadership of Moses. They've been enslaved by the Egyptians. And they're uh, recognising that they are the people of God. They come into the, uh, the desert. They wander around there for a number of years and then eventually make it into the Promised Land under Joshua. And so we understand that they have this leader of Joshua and then from the book of Joshua we move to the book of Judges and the book of Judges is basically a series of different judges that the Lord raises up to lead the people of Israel. And then we get to 1 Samuel. 1 Samuel is where there's this transition being made from judges through to having a king. The Israelites ask for a king and they are given the king Saul. And Saul at this time, as we're reading in 1 Samuel chapter 16, he's still king over Israel. But we've seen, as we've been looking at 1 Samuel together, that Saul has not been a very good king. That again and again he has shown that he is being disobedient to God's ways. He's doing things according to his ways rather than God's ways. And so God has actually rejected him as king over Israel. And if you look with me back at 1 Samuel chapter 15, uh, page 277, in verse 28, we read that Samuel, that is God's prophet, Samuel said to him, that is Saul, the Lord has torn the kingdom of Israel from you today and has given it to one of your neighbours, to one better than you. And that is what we're looking at today is how the Lord is tearing away the kingdom from Saul and giving it to one who is better. And that, of course, that person that is better is who we see in chapter 16. And that is where we're introduced to this person who would become quite famous uh, in the land of Israel. And that is, of course, David, this little shepherd boy. And so we see David is anointed as king of Israel in verses 12 and 13 of 1 Samuel chapter 16. 1 Samuel chapter 16, uh, Samuel sends for this youngest boy of Jesse. He brings him in. He was ruddy with a fine appearance and handsome features. Then the Lord said, rise and anoint him. He is the one. So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. David is anointed by Samuel. What does this signify? Well, as I've said, it signifies that he is going to be king. Uh, we're seeing this transition from King Saul to King David. But we understand an anointing is really a sign of a covenant being made between two parties. There's the person anointing 
a person, and then of course there's the anointee, so to speak, the person receiving the anointing of oil. That oil is being poured on another person's head. And that is to establish that there is a covenant, a promise being made between two parties, that the person doing the anointing is promising the person who is receiving the anointing something. And we see this is given in other parts of scripture, and one of the clearest parts when it comes to a kingship is in the anointing by the Israelites of King David in 2 Samuel chapter 5. So we're looking at 1 Samuel chapter 16 this morning, but it actually takes a while before David is recognized by the Israelites that he is their king, and it actually is over into the next book, 2 Samuel chapter 5. If you want to turn there, uh, that's on page 299. Page 299, we're going to do a little bit of flipping uh, in our Bibles today, so have them handy. 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 1. So Saul has now died, and of course uh, David has been transitioning into being the king rather than Saul's son. And verse 1 of chapter 5, it says, All the tribes of Israel came to David at Hebron and said, We are your own flesh and blood. In the past, while Saul was king over us, you were the one who led Israel on their military campaigns. And the Lord said to you, You will shepherd my people Israel, and you will become their ruler." When all the elders of Israel had come to King David at Hebron, the king made a compact, or you could translate that covenant, with them at Hebron before the Lord. And they anointed David king over Israel. There's an anointing again happening here. And that is by the Israelites to David. And what are they doing? They're making a covenant with him. They're promising that he will now be their king. And so the oil, as it's poured on the head of the person, it's kind of like if we think of a covenant today, like a contract is the word that we'd normally use. If you make a contract with someone, that you have a signature at the bottom. And so the oil is really signifying, it's like the signature at the bottom of a contract saying, this is going to happen. What we have promised we will do, and the oil signifies that it will take place. Now, who is initiating the covenant that we have uh, in 1 Samuel chapter 16, where we see David being anointed by Samuel? Well, Samuel, of course, is doing the anointing, but he's doing it on behalf of God. It's very clear in 1 Samuel chapter 16 that it's God who has chosen David. If it was up to Samuel, well, it would have been the first son of Jesse who would have been anointed but it's clear that God is the one who is doing the anointing. It is God who is initiating a covenant with David. David is the one receiving the covenant, and it is God is the one who is making that contract, that compact, that co covenant, that promise with David. And so God, as the one who has promised something to David, is now obliged to do things for David and to bless David. It's of his own free will that he has decided to do that. But once he makes a contract, once you sign off on a contract, you are then obligated to do what you have signed in that contract. And that is what God is doing here with David. But how do we know that God has indeed signed off on this contract, that he has really made a covenant with David and that he will bless David? Well, oil was the sign, as I said before, of an anointing. But there's a real anointing that's mentioned in the passage that shows that God really is signing off on the covenant. What is that anointing that is mentioned in verse 13? Well, it's the Spirit of the Lord. 
verse 13. We read, So Samuel took the horn of oil and anointed him in the presence of his brothers. And from that day on, the Spirit of the Lord came upon David in power. The Holy Spirit is the one who is the signature of God on the covenant, guaranteeing the promise of God towards David. And David could see God's signature in his life. How can you know that the Lord, that the Lord has sent his Holy Spirit to David? Well, it's by the Spirit's work, that the Spirit is working with power in the life of David. And we see that again and again, and we may see some of it as we uh, read through 1 Samuel together. But one of the clear examples of the way that the Spirit was working in David is, of course, with the gift of prophecy. In 2 Samuel chapter 23, verse 2, and David acknowledges this. He says, The Spirit of the Lord spoke through me. His word was on my tongue. How does David know that the Lord has indeed made a covenant with him? He sees the Spirit at work with him, even giving him the gift of being able to speak God's word. And so David knew he was in covenant with God every time he saw the Spirit's signature in his life. But does this anointing of David have any relevance to us? Is this a nice history lesson, a Jewish history lesson uh, for us this morning? Well, it does have great relevance to us because ultimately what is going on in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is pointing us, is setting the scene for another anointing. Who is that an anointing of? Well, it's the true king of Israel. God's covenant with David included that one of David's sons one day would be on the throne forever, that he would have an eternal throne. That someone else was going to be a part of that covenant that is made with David and extended even further with even greater blessings than David received. And we read that in 2 Samuel chapter 7. Turn with me again to 2 Samuel. Uh, that is the next book over from 1 Samuel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, which is one of the, the high points in Scripture uh, where we see the covenant that is made with David explained in such great detail and, of course, has great relevance to us today as it points to that true king of Israel. 2 Samuel chapter 7, 2 Samuel chapter 7, and we'll read from verse 12. So Nathan the prophet has come to David and is telling David what the Lord will do for him. And he says in chapter 7, verse 12, which is actually page 302, 302, if you've got a church Bible, when your days, that's uh, David's days are over, and you rest with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you who will come from your own body, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will punish him with the rod of men, with floggings inflicted by men. But my love will never be taken away from him as I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom will endure forever." Before me, your throne will be established forever. The anointing in 1 Samuel chapter 16 is really just setting the scene for this other anointing that would take place one day. One of Samuel's, uh, one of David's sons, he would take over the throne forever. And who is this son of David? Well, of course, it's the Lord Jesus, born of Bethlehem as well. We see this anointing taking place in 1 Samuel chapter 16 in the town of Bethlehem. And that little town of Bethlehem, of course, is the birthplace of Jesus of Nazareth. Nazareth. David was an anointed one. He was a Christian. 
If you understand the word Christ, it's just a Greek word that is to translate the word Messiah, the Hebrew word in the Old Testament, and Messiah is the word that is used for an anointing. So a Christ, Christ is an anointed one. If you're a Christ, you're an anointed one. If you're a Christian, you're an anointed person. And David was an anointed person. He was a Christian. But Jesus was the true Christian. He was the real anointed one of God. He is the one who lived a holier life than David. David, of course, was much better king than Saul, but he still had his issues. Jesus is holy as God is holy. He is the true anointed one. But was Jesus anointed, you say? When was Jesus anointed? Jesus was anointed. Like David, Jesus was anointed with the Holy Spirit. We see the importance of the Holy Spirit there in 1 Samuel chapter 16, verse 13. And we understand that Jesus too had the Holy Spirit come upon him. When did we see the Holy Spirit come upon Jesus? It's at his baptism. That passage that we had read for us before from Matthew chapter 3. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and lighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Jesus was anointed by God on the day of his baptism, and God declared that he was in covenant. He was in covenant relationship with Jesus. What did he say? This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. God was anointing Jesus that day and saying, I am in a covenant relationship with Jesus. I am going to bless him and give him the keys to the kingdom. He is the one who will reign over all. And so we see the signature of the Holy Spirit being put there at the covenant with Jesus Christ. There at his baptism it is shown. But of course the Spirit of the Lord is shown in the life of Jesus as well. Just as we saw the Spirit of the Lord was shown in the life of of David, we see again and again that the Lord Jesus shows that he's anointed by the Holy Spirit by the way that he lives. In Matthew, uh, sorry, Luke chapter 4, Luke chapter 4, Jesus himself says, the Spirit of the Lord is on me, he's quoting from Isaiah, because he has anointed me, he's anointed me to preach good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to release the oppressed, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. How do we know the Spirit of the Lord had anointed Jesus? By the way that Jesus proclaimed the good news of Jesus Christ, of him, of the salvation that was to come through the Messiah. We see that Jesus had the Holy Spirit upon him by the way that he lived. You may be saying, hang on, Joel, you said what relevance is there for us today? It's all very nice for David to be anointed, all very nice for Jesus to be anointed. What is the relevance for us? Is there another anointing that 1 Samuel chapter 16 is pointing to? And the answer to that is yes. What's that anointing? Well, the New Testament teaches us that believers in Jesus Christ are Christians they are Christians. They are anointed ones as well, that they have been anointed by the Holy Spirit as well. 2 Corinthians 1 verse 20 to 22 teaches us that. Turn with me now, 1 Corinthians, uh, sorry, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, page 1142, 1142, 2 Corinthians chapter 1, reading from verse 20. 
2 Corinthians chapter 1, reading from verse 21142. The Apostle Paul says, For no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. And so through him the Amen is spoken by us to the glory of God. Now it is God who makes both us and you stand firm in Christ. He anointed us, set his seal of ownership on us, and put his spirit in our hearts as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Here again we see that promises have been made, and they are fulfilled in Christ Jesus for us who are in Christ Jesus. And we are anointed ones as well. We are Christians. Remember the word Christ just means an anointed one. We are anointed ones. And how do we know we are the anointed ones? Well, it's because of the Holy Spirit. It says there that the Holy Spirit has been given to us. Remember, he is the signature at the bottom of the covenant contract that God says, yes, this promise I make is for you, and I sign it off by giving you the Holy Spirit. God has covenanted with every Christian. We are part of the covenant of David that was made so many years ago in 1 Samuel chapter 16. That day, it was pointing forward to you being a part of that covenant too, if you are in Christ Jesus, which means that you are a prince or a princess in the kingdom along with David and, of course, the true king of Israel, Jesus Christ. All the promises God made are yes for us in Christ Jesus, which means manifold blessings, many blessings God has promised to give to his anointed ones by his own free will. He's not obligated to do so before, but once he has promised you, he is obliged to bless you because he cannot deny himself. He is obliged to bless his anointed ones. So what should we do this morning? Well, I've got two things. Firstly, check if you have the covenant signature on your life. What was that covenant signature? Of course, it's the Holy Spirit. A covenant, a contract from someone is only worth something if they have signed it off. They can write a lovely contract, make many promises to give you many good things, but if there's no signature at the bottom, it's worthless. Lots of good intentions, nothing that will actually come about. So we must make sure that the Holy Spirit testifies that we are part of God's covenant. If you want to know that you are there alongside David, alongside Jesus Christ and all other anointed ones, Christians, you need to know that the Holy Spirit has signed off on you as part of the promise that he made to his people. Now, how do you know that the Holy Spirit has signed off on you, that he has come upon you? with power as he came upon David? Well, one of the most obvious ways is by the fruit of the Spirit being displayed in your life. Galatians 5 speaks about the fruit of the Spirit that we should have. He talks about the acts of the sinful nature, which we're meant to have died to, and then he speaks about the fruit of the Spirit, of love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. We're meant to be looking for those things in our lives. They are signatures of the Holy Spirit at work within us when we love others, when we have a joy in God, when we're peaceful towards others, when we have a faithfulness and a gentleness and a kindness towards others. 
They are the signature of the Holy Spirit on us and we should be looking for them so that we know that we are part of the covenant that God made with his anointed ones. I must make a point here, though, that we should be careful of looking for the miraculous work of the Holy Spirit that we see again and again in the pages of Scripture, but it's not common to all God's people. There's a warning from the Lord Jesus himself in Matthew chapter 7. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Away from me, you evildoers. It doesn't matter if you've claimed to prophesy in God's name and drive out demons in God's name and to, uh, to do many miracles in God's name. If you are doing evil, if you're not having the fruit of the Spirit in your life, then you cannot claim to have the signature of God at the bottom of the covenant that he has made to his anointed ones. And so what do you do if you think that you're not anointed? If you're looking at your life even now and you're seeing a lack of the fruit of the Spirit in your life, what should you do? You should be afraid. If you've been thinking that you're a Christian before and relied on a false signature at the bottom of the covenant, you should be afraid. Satan loves to put a false signature there and say, yes, you're part of God's covenant. You don't need to worry. But if you're examining your heart now and seeing that you can't see the Holy Spirit, Spirit signature there, then you need to be afraid. You're no heir of God. You're no heir of the promises that he has made here, the blessings, the manifold blessings that he will give to his anointed ones. And you should be afraid. That's what the Bible says. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. You need to be afraid so that you can be wise. You need to know this morning that you are outside of God's promises. And you need to be afraid and know that you cannot even earn that anointing. You cannot earn that anointing. You must be chosen by God to be one of his people. We see that so clearly in 1 Samuel chapter 16. Did David choose to be anointed? Clearly not. He was out with the sheep. He didn't even know what was going on back home. It is God who chose David. And it's the same today. Every Christian, every anointed one is chosen by God. So what should you do if you find that you cannot see the fruit of the Spirit in your life? Cry to God for mercy. Cry to God for mercy. Beg him that he would include you in his covenant. Turn to him in repentance and faith. They're fruit of the Spirit that are shown in the life of those who are truly part of God's anointed ones, his anointed community. Come to him. Turn to him. He commands you to do it. Turn and trust that Jesus Christ died for you. But if you do see the signature of the Spirit on your life, you've examined yourself, and it's a good practice for us to all do, it's good for me to do as a pastor, to look at my life and see if the fruit of the Spirit is there so that I know that the signature is at the bottom of that contract that God has made with his people. But if you do see it there, if you see repentance and faith in your life, you see the fruit of the Spirit, what should you do? Well, rejoice that this book is your covenant with God. It's not just David's covenant. It's not just Jesus' covenant. This is your covenant. It's not just Joel's covenant up the front here today. It's your covenant that God has made with you as an anointed one. He's given you his Holy Spirit so that you would know that this book is your book. 
that the promises made in here are your promises. They belong to you from God. You're part of his covenant community. And so rejoice in this fact. How do you cultivate such joy? Well, I know no better way, really, than reading this covenant again and again, reading over this book again and again. I know people don't usually like reading contracts. They don't like reading contracts, and you think, oh, bore, when you see a long contract, and particularly those on the internet where you're signing up for some service, and they say terms and conditions, and what do you do? You just scroll to the end and click, I agree. You don't like reading all the details about what the the company will promise to do for you and what you promise to do for the company. Oh, bore, just let me scroll through and click I agree. But there is a type of contract, a type of covenant that people do like reading. What is the covenant that people do like reading in this world? It's the last will and testament of rich relatives who have died and left you something in their will. People want to read that covenant. They want to read every line and make sure that nothing is missed, that I inherit the mansion and the Ferrari and the yacht and the bank account and the shares in the overseas bank account. I want to make sure I get it all. And so they read every line. They like that covenant. They like the terms and conditions there, and they want to read it again and again and again and make sure it all comes to them. Even if they have to wait for a time, they look at how long do I have to wait? Do I have to turn 18? Do I have to turn 21 before I inherit all these blessings from this rich relative of mine? And that's the way we should come to the Bible. This is the last will and testament of our God. He has given us his covenant contract before us now. God has covenanted with us as his people, and we should be rejoicing in it and digging into it. There is really one covenant that God has made with his people. We term it the covenant of grace. You won't find the term in the Bible, but it's the way that theologians try and understand how God has covenanted with us, promised, made promises to us. He's made one big covenant of grace, but it's been differing in ages, in the different ages of God's people. There's been different blessings and different responsibilities given to God's people. And that's why we actually call this book, we divide it up into Old Testament. That word ring a bell? Testament. We think of last will and testament covenant as old covenant and new testament, new covenant. And so we, we put a split down the middle generally and we say, look, old testament, old covenant, that was how God dispensed his covenant of grace to God's people in the past. And now we're in the new covenant age, which is how God is dispensing his grace. As still part of that overall arching covenant of grace, we have a new covenant underneath that of what we should do and what God will do for us. But even as we recognize that there's an old covenant and there's a new covenant, underneath the covenant of grace, we recognize that the details of the old covenant are fulfilled, many of them are fulfilled in Jesus, but many of them still apply to us and are even reiterated in the New Testament. We've got to be careful about making too much of a divide between the Old and the New Testaments and say, oh, look, we only really need to read the New Testament. The Old Testament has no relevance for us. It was for the people of Israel, but we are Gentiles. We've been added in, and so the New Testament is where it's at. No, much of the Old Testament is still applying to us underneath that overarching covenant of grace, that God has covenanted to be gracious to us. 
And so many of the details of things that are spoken of in the New Testament, the New Covenant, are there in the Old Testament explained in greater detail and still apply to us and can be rejoiced in. And so what does that mean for us as anointed ones, as Christians? We love and devour both Testaments, both covenants, because we see in there the terms and conditions of that overarching covenant of grace that we love so much that God has made with us. And so why do we read it? We read it to rejoice. We read it to learn about what God would have us do as his covenant people. And of course, the big things are repent, believe, obey the laws that he has given us. But also, of course, we want to read this book so that we learn of what God will do for us. We want to read what we need to do, but we love to read what God will do for us. God has made so many promises under that overarching covenant of grace of what he will do for us. He has promised to forgive us. In Matthew 26, verse 28, he says, This is the blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. We have forgiveness of sins as covenant people. It's a term and condition within this book that we have forgiveness of sins if we are covenant people. We have been promised that God will give us himself. 2 Corinthians 6, verse 16, quoting from the Old Testament, the Apostle Paul says, God has said, I will live with them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. We have God himself. He is our God. He is our Father. He is our brother. He is our counsellor, our advocate. We have God himself. He has promised it in his covenant to us. And we should be rejoicing in it. He's also promised that he would make us like Jesus Christ. 1 John chapter 3, verse 2. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Do you know one day God has promised that he will make you completely holy? That you will never wrestle with the flesh again? That you will be holy as God is holy? You will be completely washed and sanctified never to sin again. That's a term and condition within this book, this covenant that God has made with you. Doesn't that thrill you and give joy to you as you read over the contract? If you recognise that this is a covenant from God, a promise made to God, you'll want to read it and look at the promises there and you'll even want to get the opinion of lawyers on it. If you have a, a will from a rich relative, you'll want to get the opinion of lawyers on it. What does that mean there? What's that clause over there? I don't quite get it. Is that another thing that I inherit? What's this uh, fund that is mentioned here? I don't understand the lingo. Is that a, something that's good for me, a blessing from my rich relative? And that's what we do with this book, isn't it? You get the opinion of lawyers on it. That's what you're doing even now, this morning. I am a lawyer up the front here, helping you to understand the contract that God has made with you so that you can rejoice in it. Because at the moment you may be thinking, I don't quite get it, what the forgiveness of sins is. I don't quite get it, what it means to have God as my God, to have him as my father. Help me out to understand that clause, Joel. And not just Joel, but you go to other lawyers to help you. There's one lawyer that I particularly love, and that is a lawyer known as Charles Haddon Spurgeon. He was a preacher in London, uh, not last century, the century before, in the 1800s. 
the 19th century. And he has a little book that's really good on this topic. It's called uh, Faith's Checkbook. Faith's Checkbook. And it's basically every page, there's 365 pages in it, every page has a promise of God at the top and then a little explanation from Spurgeon as our lawyer explaining that promise and what it means to us. Why 365 pages? 365 days of the year. He wants you to go through a promise a day. Look at another condition that God has made that he will give you, that he has obliged himself to give you of his own free will. He chose to do it for you, and now he is obliged to do it. Get the opinion of lawyers. That's what you'll do if you recognize that this is a covenant that God has made with you. You may be saying, why not? Why read about these promises? Shouldn't I just experience the blessings of God now? Why do I need to read them, Joel? Shouldn't I just lap them up as they come my way? Well, it's because many of the blessings are withheld for a time. Many of the blessings of God's covenant are withheld. We're supposed to hope for those blessings. Romans 8 tells us who hopes for what he already has. God has promised many things to us, and we're expected to live a life of faith, a life of love, and a life of hope for these promises that God has made. We're like a child that needs to turn 18 before he will inherit all the blessings that a rich heir uh, that a rich relative has promised to leave for him. That's like us today. We're in a now, not yet situation. There are many blessings that God has covenanted to give us, and he has given us now. You can experience the joy of being one of God's people, a small taste of the joy that will come in the heavenly home that we look forward to one day. We have a bit of a wait before us, and that's why we read over this book, to invigorate our hearts and to rejoice over what is to come. David, as I said before, he had to wait. He had to wait a long time. <laughs> and King Saul tried to attack him for many years before he actually ended up being king over all Israel. He was king over Judah, his own tribe, for a time as well. But then it took time for the whole of Israel to be given to him. That's what we have to do, like David. We are anointed ones. God has covenanted with us. But we have to wait for many of the blessings that are to come. But what should we do in the meantime? We should read over them. I'm sure David spent a lot of time considering what God was going to do for him long before it actually came to be. Can you be a Christian and not devour this covenant? Can you be a Christian and not be interested in the contract that God has made with you to find out what God has promised you? Won't we read it more than we would read the will of a rich relative? This is the will of the King of Kings who owns all things. Don't you want to know what he's promised to give you if you are one of his people? Won't you study his covenant more and more and even get the opinion of lawyers on it so that you can understand more and rejoice more at the wonderful things that he has promised to bless you with as your God who has made a covenant of grace with you. Let's speak with him now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we praise you as the covenant-making God. We thank you for making your covenant with David. We thank you for making your covenant with Jesus Christ. 
But Lord, we thank you for making your covenant with us in Christ Jesus. Lord, we ask that you would help us to look for the Holy Spirit's work in our lives as a signature of the covenant so that we know that we really are the people of God. We really are Christians. We really are anointed ones. And help us to read over the covenant repeatedly, rejoicing in your promises. Oh, Lord, we so often forego the joy that we could have if we simply looked at your word and looked at what you, our Heavenly Father, has promised to give us in due course. Oh, Lord, we pray that this would be our delight, that this would be our joy. And, Lord, we pray that if anyone here this morning is not anointed by yourself, has not received the Holy Spirit, oh, Lord, we beg that you, in your mercy, in your grace, you would anoint them now so that they have repentance and faith and start to exercise the fruit of the Spirit and start to experience the joy of knowing you the covenant-making God. And we pray this in your name. Amen.